fast forward to 2006, and I was laying in the sands of Iraq, listening to the blood leave my body, and I was almost certain I was going to die. To now, I'm extremely happily married. I've got an awesome job, two two jobs basically, plus the radio that I the radio show that I get to be on on Friday mornings with a little girl on the way. I I, I can't believe it, and I and it's why I never want to forget that day because it reminds me how fortunate I am to be alive. And it makes me appreciate all these, these little things in my life. If you've ever wondered what separates top performers from everyone else, you probably discovered it is just a couple differentiators that determine wild success from average results. My name is Don McPherson, and for two decades, I've been working with executives to help them optimize performance at the individual, team, and organization levels. Now I interview exceptional people from all walks of life so we can learn from them. Welcome to 12 Geniuses. Returning to civilian life after serving in a war can be challenging for any veteran. They go back to their lives, but their communities have changed, events have occurred in their families without them, and they may carry baggage back from their deployments. Reentry is especially difficult for post-9-11 veterans who experienced combat, a traumatic event, are seriously injured, or know someone killed in action. Today's guest experienced all of those things during his deployment to Iraq in 2006. John Creasel was serving as part of the Minnesota Army National Guard near Fallujah when a roadside bomb took both his legs, shattered his pelvis, and sent him into an eight-day medically-induced coma. This is more than a war story. It's a story of a man who has risen from the darkest days any of us can imagine to building a life that includes his dream job, his dream wife, and soon, his first child. John, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And let's just start out by talking about where you grew up. I grew up in Badness Heights, Minnesota, which is just north of St. Paul, about 10 minutes north of St. Paul. Graduated from White Bear Lake High School in 2000. And what was life like in Badness Heights and White Bear Lake during your childhood? It was it was classic suburbia. I mean, it was we had a fun neighborhood. A lot of kids my age play sports all the time in the neighborhood. You know, the We'd get capture the flag going, ding dong ditch, you know, just the the classic suburban life. And when you were in high school, what did you have for aspirations after high school? I wanted to be in the military. I, from when I was around ten years old, I when I saw the first Gulf War on TV, I saw the I saw the news coverage of it, and I was just intrigued by it. And it was like nonstop. There hadn't been a televised war in my lifetime. So I was like, that is what I want to do when I grow up. And I held on to that dream and I joined the, the second that I could. And during your high school years, did you have a particular branch that you were leaning toward? I think I always leaned to Army, but I gave each of them a shot. I went to, I went to every recruiter just to kind of hear what was out there for me as an option. Air Force sounded, sounded cool, but I, I always wanted that action, that boots on the ground kind of life. When I thought of the military, 
and what I aspired to be in the military, I always kind of gravitated towards that. And that's, that's what I ended up doing. You wanted to carry a rifle. I did. I wanted to be in the infantry. Okay. So is it true that on your 17th birthday, you signed up? I did. I didn't even know you could sign up that early. Yep. My mom had to sign the waiver. It was, if I waited till I was 18, I could have signed up just on my own. So I had to convince her a little bit. She wasn't thrilled. She was worried. And my dad was like, this will be good for him. And I was, I was a, a screw off growing up. Nothing nothing egregious. It was more of just, I like to be the class clown. I like to get people in school laughing at whatever cost. So I'd have to get, I'd get kicked out of class. Sometimes I'd get sent to the principal's office in school suspension, the whole bit. So I didn't, my parents had such tough upbringings that they wanted my sister and I to have great upbringings. With that came some kind of lack of structure. They were just like, whatever, just live a happy life. And the military gave me structure. And I'm very thankful that I had that. Did you go to basic training between your junior and senior year of high yes, school? I did. What was that like? They squared me away pretty quickly. It taught me respect. It taught me to pick my place that, you know, humor isn't good in every situation. Yeah, it was a very good experience. So I came back from my senior year squared away. I, I put my head down. I got my work done. I was respectful to the teachers and yeah. They can teach you respect in 10 or 12 weeks, huh? Yeah. Especially, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're very magical about it. Early on in basic training, if you blink wrong, you get punished. And it's group punishment. So then you learn to look out for one another and correct each other before the drill started. So, I mean, they set the, they set the kind of, they set the foundation for a successful military career. They break you down destroy you, destroy your confidence, everything, and then they build you up. So I went back at yeah, my senior year, I was a much different person, had a much different outlook, respect, my work ethic had improved. Not that I was this, I had a, had a job since I was 15. So, but it was more of just, I think I learned how to focus. And instead of being all over the place, I learned how to dedicate my energy to something. And you were part of the Minnesota Army National Guard. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And the first deployment was Kosovo, is Kosovo. that correct? 2004? Yes. Yep. 2004 is when we went. We started our training in 2003 for it. And what was that like? It was awesome. Was this part of the UN or? NATO. NATO, sorry. Yes. It was part of NATO. Okay. Yes. And it was, it was an eye opener for me at that age. Really made me appreciate the life that I had back home. And a lot of the things I would complain about and my friends would complain about, I realized like we got it made. And so it, it changed me from that aspect of it. And it was cool because it was our job to protect a group of people that couldn't protect themselves. We were essentially a police force there and they needed us. But as far as jobs go, we, we kind of had it made. We weren't really in a dangerous situation. There was a couple uprisings. There was a riots that lasted like three days that we tear gassed people. They threw rocks at us. It wasn't never really did I think I was going to lose my life over there. And how long were you there? Six months. We had a six-month train-up and then six months in country. So it was a pretty quick turnaround. So you're in and out in 2004, mm -hmm. 2005, no deployments. You're back in the U.S.? Yes. So I came back at the end of 2004. And okay. my contract was ending, so I was going to get out of the guard. I wanted to be a paramedic firefighter for St. Paul Fire Department. Why did you stay in? My buddy called me and let me know that there was a deployment to Iraq coming up where the train-up would start the next fall, so the fall of 2005. And the entire time in Kosovo, we felt guilty. We'd see every day on the news, we'd see what was going on over there in Iraq and Afghanistan, I mean. And it's just heartbreaking. And as an infantry unit, we're the war fighters. We want, we feel like that's where we should be. 
and especially low 20 year olds not you're fearless you know let's go to the most dangerous place if i feel like we can make a difference there and we truly felt that way and we talked about that every single day that seems like if i if memory serves me that seems like a very dangerous time mm-hmm. in iraq a lot of roadside yes. bombs that's 2005 really when, 2006 yes that's when the insurgency started turning and there wasn't we had up armored humvees in kosovo for a while and i remember them coming to pick them up with a bunch of trucks came to base it's obviously we didn't need them in kosovo and in iraq there were people driving around in humvees that were the soft sides and you hit a roadside bomb in one of those there you don't have a chance so it yeah that time of the war was really getting dicey so your buddy suggests that you re-up and you do yeah and that leads you to iraq yes where did you go in iraq fallujah yeah what was that like it was wild we got there and, and they really eased us in. We were, we were bored at first because they had us just in towers. But they, like anything, you can't just, you know, any job you get, they're not going to just throw you to the wolves. You got to work your way in. And so we started going out on patrols further out and further out. And then uh, we ended up, our mission became pushing the enemy far enough out from, it was about an eight mile radius of Camp Fallujah. So they couldn't launch mortars and rockets and hit the 19,000 people on camp. And as we, we pushed them and they pushed us, so the danger increased a lot throughout the summer of 2006. I mean, at first, it felt like Kosovo. We'd go out on patrols in the villages near Camp Fallujah where nothing's going to happen because it's within eyesight of the camp. So the insurgents aren't going to go mess around there. So then the, the game changed throughout that summer of 2006. Can you talk about the events on December 2nd, 2006? Yes, our lieutenant spotted suspicious activity when he was on the roof so he came and woke woke a bunch of us up and said he needed volunteers to go and check it out so five of us volunteered to be in the humvee because there's only five spots in there three in a bradley fighting vehicle to our front which is a armored personnel carrier went down there checked it out ended up being nothing so we were going to head back to camp but then we got a call my gunner was the one who got the call because i was out of the vehicle he said that one of the drones flying above us spotted someone digging in the road at checkpoint three four. We needed to check it out. So we headed that direction. I was in the right front passenger seat. I was operating the radio. We ended up, I remember calling in the checkpoints as we got to that spot. And the last stretch of road before getting to checkpoint three four where that person had been digging, we had around like a 90 degree turn, like an L-shaped turn. And as we rounded that corner, I heard the metallic clank of whatever it was being detonated. It was this plink, and then this loud whooshing sound. And then I, uh, I woke up on the ground and heard rocks falling, rocks hitting the ground, rocks hitting metal, heard my buddy yelling. So I knew, I knew we had hit an IED, and, and I knew that it was a big one. So you're completely conscious at this moment. Yes. I lost consciousness when the bomb went off and when I flew through the air. So I, I woke up on the ground after having been ejected from the vehicle. But that must have only been a few seconds if you could still hear rocks coming down. Absolutely. Yep. What is your first thought? I was realizing what had happened. And then uh, I felt myself in a, in a twisted position. So I knew I had been hurt. I didn't know how severe it was. I saw my arm was broken all the way. Th- so it was kind of flopped there. So I held that against my chest. And I looked down and saw that my legs were... The left one, it was a compound fracture above the knee, so the bone, the femur was sticking out of it. And basically, the leg wasn't connected. 
And then my right leg below the knee was mangled and I could hear the blood hitting the sand. So I was pretty sure that I was not going to survive. For how long did you have that uncertainty? Until my buddies got there. They were in the vehicle ahead of us and the blast was so powerful they thought they had hit it. They came rushing back. It was 200 pounds of explosives in a, two propane tanks. So it detonated underneath our vehicle. Complete, I mean, our vehicle was brand new, fully up armored. Thing was mangled. I was looking right at it. It looked nothing like a Humvee. So my buddies came up from the vehicle ahead of me and Adam was the first one. He put a tourniquet on my right leg, the one that was actually squirting, essentially, for lack of a better word. And he told me I was going to be fine. He's like, you just hang in there. You're going to be fine. I need to check on the others. And, you know, I still had my doubts, but I was realizing and everything had slowed down. So my mind was sharp and I was trying to trying to stay positive about the whole situation because I knew that I really had very little control over it. But what control I did have was my mindset and I needed to stay positive as much as possible. Yeah, having this positive mindset is is really critical in a situation like that. Have you always been an optimist? Because I see you as quite an op- yeah. optimist right now. I've always, in, to a fault, I would say. I've always, and I'm still very optimistic. I'm a little more of a realist now. But I think before it was, everything's going to work out. Always. Everything's just going to be fine or whatever. So, you know, that I think served me well in this situation. The, the roadside bomb explodes. You're thrown from the vehicle. There were four other people in the vehicle. What, what's happening with them? So the guys that were working on me had to go around and triage the others. And I knew my buddy to my left was not doing well. And I didn't know which person it was. This is the was. driver? This was, he had been the one behind the driver. Okay. But I didn't look over at him because I thought if I'm going to survive, I need to stay calm and see. And, and if, I do, if I do survive, I don't want to remember that the rest of my life was seeing that. Because the sounds that I heard for, that he was making are tough enough to relive. So seeing that, and I needed to stay calm because I was losing a lot of blood. I needed to keep my heart right down. So I just was like, all right, I'm just going to lay low. I'm going to close my eyes and relax, which ended up being a dumb idea because then I kept like falling asleep. And my buddies had to come, keep running by and slapping me to keep me awake. And they ended up like the last time, it was almost like a punch to the face. It hurt so bad. You so can I, feel this. Oh, yeah. So I told him to knock it off. You're, you're in complete shock and you can, yeah. you, you can still feel him hitting yeah. your face. Wow. So then they came and they moved. They had to move me away from the vehicle because they were going to try and save Corey. Corey was the one that was trapped underneath it. And so they knew that the vehicle was unstable. It, it was on the side. And if it tipped, it, it would have landed right on me. So they had to move me away from the vehicle. They flipped my legs up onto the ch- on my chest and moved me. And I felt a ton of pain at that time because my pelvis had been broken. And then, and then the helicopters were arriving. And I, I remember Adam coming over and I was getting cold at that point. So I thought I was, I was going to die. So I grabbed Adam with my good arm and I told him to tell my family I love them. Mm-hmm. And he said, shut up, you're going to tell them yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's really the first time that day that I felt hope, that I felt like I had some actual control over it. So I told my, I was like, stay awake, keep fighting. I need to keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting. And then the helicopter, I heard the helicopter coming and I thought, I, I can do this. I have to do this. You get, you get airlifted out of there. When did you lose consciousness? On the helicopter. They asked me my social security number and I was so exhausted. I couldn't get the first digit of it out. But what, in, what I had learned since is that they had given me 
they always give you medication on the helicopter, whether you're going to be awake or not, where you're kind of incapacitated. So you couldn't freak out and bring the helicopter down. But for me, I, I think they were probably starting the medically induced coma. But I remember her asking my name and me trying to, or not my name. She said, John, what is your social security number? And I knew it. I couldn't say it. And that's it till I woke up at Walter Reed. And when did you wake up at Walter Reed? It was eight days, eight days after the, the blast. What happened in between? I'd been to two field hospitals in Iraq. The first field hospital, they took what was left of my legs and they had to shock me back to life three times, which I didn't know until the author of my book was interviewing my company commander who was at the field hospital when we were brought in. And he had said something like he even, like my leg was flopping around. He almost had to like, I think he ended up having to put it back on me on the stretcher. And then he watched as they worked to save my life and they shocked me back to life three times. They didn't give up on me. And then they stabilized me at that point. They put me in, it's called a hot pocket. It's like a, like a body bag, but with a tube sticking out of it to keep my body temperature regulated. And they zipped that up. And I mean, people walking by would have assumed I was dead probably, but they were able to stabilize me and fly me to Balad, which is north of Baghdad, stabilize me further then send me to Lonstool, which is where my situation deteriorated. And they, they didn't think I was going to survive there. This is in Germany? Yep. Okay. So my family flew over to basically say goodbye to me. And thankfully, thankfully I survived. How many days did it take you to get to Germany? Oh, I think by day three I was there. But I missed three flights back to the United States because I wasn't stable enough. And they said, nobody misses four flights and survives. What went through your mind when you learned what had happened during the attack? Well, I, I woke up and I saw I was alive. And that, that feeling, I think, when I woke up and looked around and just thought, oh my God, I, I'm here. I actually lived. I'm not dreaming. I, I, was, I felt so happy about that, that I thought, I knew they, I didn't know the extent of the injuries yet. I was pretty, pretty sure of them. But I, at that point, I thought, I'm, I'm going to be fine. This is going to be all right. What were the extent of your injuries? Obviously, you had the broken arm and your arm mm -hmm. looks great. Thanks. Actually, I mean, they did a good quite... job with the scar too. Like that side doesn't have. So they put two rods in my left arm. So the ulna and the radius had both been broken. I lost left leg above the knee, right leg below the knee. My pelvis, both wings of the pelvis, had, I think they're called the iliac wings. They had been broken forward. So those were kind of floating. They had to put that back together probably the most painful surgery I've ever had. They had to put bolts through my pelvis into my spine. And then they had to put my, my sacrum had been shattered. So the basically your tailbone area, all of that sitting area was shattered. I lost an inch of my colon because I took shrapnel to my intestines, traumatic brain injury. Those doctors, my God, they're amazing. I mean, that, that pelvic surgery, they had said it had only been done to that extent, like twice ever in the world, I think. And that they built a model of it, of the pelvis, 3D imaging, and then they, they made a, a, a model of it. And that's how they decided what angles they're going at and all of it. I mean, to, to go into the spinal column and not hit my spinal cord is amazing. Our guest today is Iraq War veteran and Purple Heart recipient, John Creasel. We just heard about his service in Kosovo and the Middle East. 
When we return, we will discuss the life John has built since the traumatic explosion that nearly took his life. This is the best time in human history to be alive. People are living longer, healthier lives. Millions of people are escaping abject poverty every year, and diseases that used to be a death sentence are on the ropes. But the world is changing quickly too. Artificial intelligence, advanced robotics, 3D printing, the Internet of Things, and a host of other technologies will change the way we live and work. Is your organization ready for it? 12 Geniuses isn't just a podcast. We're an organization that educates leaders about the changing world of work so you can harness new technologies, demographic changes, and innovative business models. To learn how 12 Geniuses can help prepare your leadership team to take advantage of the changes that will shape the next decade, check us out at 12geniuses.com. We are back with John Creasel. In this segment, we are going to discuss how John managed through the recovery from his war injuries and has built a life that is better than he ever could have imagined. So you have all of these combat injuries. You're at Walter Reed and, you know, there for three, four months and then outpatient for a while. What, what did you imagine, particularly while you were at Walter Reed, what did you imagine life being like uh, the, for the rest of your life? You, you quickly learn. What, you know, Walter Reed was kind of the easy part. Physically, it wasn't. But at physical stuff, that stuff, I always thrive. If it's something that physically has to get done, I'll work my tail off and get through it, and it'll be fine. But getting back to Minnesota, a ton of challenges. That's when then life settles in, and you have to get back to normal. Not necessarily to the normal before. And, and feeling like you're going to get to that is discouraging because it's not. It, it, you have to learn to find a new normal. And it, it took... A long time it creates tremendous strain on the family and you know it's the adjustment and learning when you come back to minnesota whereas at walter reed everyone's like you there's other amputees they understand you come back to minnesota nobody's like you it's it's extremely rare and you know you hope that everything can like i said get back to normal but you know it's it, it's not so yeah the, the family situation got real tough you know you learn that the the person that's by your side that's supposed to be your rock, your your support, you know, when it turns out that they're not, it's it's heartbreaking, and you and and then you start thinking, well, what's wrong with me? Nobody wants a guy with no legs, you know. My wife doesn't even, and so then it, then that's extremely tough, and that complicates the recovery even more. Did you go through a bout of depression? I wouldn't say depression. It was more of anger. It's complicated enough just returning from combat, but then you throw in the injuries, the fact that your life's different. And now you have to think about mobility stuff, parking, if you're going to this place, all of that. And then on top of it, you know, the complications with the family. there's just so many things that it took a long time. It took, it took a handful of years where I got enough confidence myself. And I think when I decided to run for the legislature, that's when I really became a better person and looked at myself as having value. This is 2009, roughly nine going into being elected in in 10. Okay. Yep. And and doing that and working my tail off and getting that, that's, that was one of the greatest feelings of my life because I knew I didn't have to rely on that other person. You know, if you're told your whole time that you need them, this, you need them for everything. 
you know, and they're not treating you well, then all of a sudden you do something on your own. It was so freeing. I, I can't even explain it. I would imagine it feels validating. Absolutely validating. How did you, how did you cope with these massive changes? When I got back home, everybody was like, how are you doing? How are you doing? And I was so busy telling everybody I was fine. It was, I was trying to convince myself really, as it turned out. And it took time. I, I stayed busy enough for a long enough period of time that things became fine. I kind of found my groove when I got in the legislature. Like you said, it was validating. Then I was like, okay, I, I can do things. It was a skill set I had never, I, I was an infantryman and I was a, an ink manufacturer. I worked with my hands my whole life. So then I found that I had, I was so far out of my comfort zone that once I started finding my way, outside my comfort zone. That's when I think I really started to grow as a person. And I wouldn't say I was unhappy before. So like the depression part, because I just stayed busy and I don't allow myself to sit and really feel sorry for myself or sad. I focus on the things I can control. And when I got to that point, I truly became a new level of happy. And that's when I grew as, as a person, I think, the most. Did you have a mentor or somebody who, who helped guide you through these changes? I wouldn't say a mentor. I mean, I, at Walter Reed, there's, there's individuals that you get to know that have been through it that come back and visit years after. There's Tom and Eleanor Porter would come by and bring cookies like every Tuesday or Wednesday. I forget. Tom was a double amputee and he met his wife. She was his nurse. And they've been married ever since. So I kind of had him as a mentor. But I think the fact that I was National Guard and all of us were from Minnesota and we came back to Minnesota together. And I knew that, I mean, Todd Everson, the guy that put the tourniquet on my left leg, he lives 10 minutes from me. My, my best friend, Tim Nelson, he, I work with him. And he absolutely, we've all leaned on each other. So it's, we've all kind of mentored each other. We all have kind of different skill sets. And I think we just work well together. So not, we were never alone. I never felt alone. I don't think they ever did either. When did your optimism reappear? You said you've been the optimistic your whole life, but I'm sure there were really difficult times. Mm -hmm. Was it when you started to run for the house, Minnesota yes, house? Because I, I saw that I can do things. I can, do, I can, I, I had no chance of winning. That was, I, at that point, I was the only Republican to ever win in that district without even getting into views and whatnot. But I was essentially asked to run to use up resources so the other side would have to spend money there. And all of a sudden, I won. You won. I won. That's I, amazing. I outdoor knocked somebody who has two legs. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it was also all of my army buddies helped campaign and would be in parades. It was this big group, awesome effort. And yeah, the, the feeling of having that election night when I learned that I won it was a close race. So it was like four in the morning that I found out. I was like, oh. yeah, an unforgettable moment. Well, congratulations. What is the post-it note routine? So, and I discuss this in my motivational speeches that I give on those tough days. And I would kind of secretly do this. I didn't put it on the mirror, you know, in my previous, previous life. But on those tough days where you're like, you just want to hit the reset button and just, or the fast forward button and just start the next day. This, this day is done. It sucked. I need to move forward, get the next day started. Take a post-it note, write three to five things in your life that bring you joy, that put a smile on your face, that you're truly thankful for. 
You put that on your mirror. And then that's the first thing you see when you wake up the next day. And that will change your entire day. That positive thought in the morning. How often do you do it? Lately, I haven't had to. I haven't had, <laughs> I haven't had to since I've been in my new marriage. But, you know, I, I, I just, I think what that does, and I did it a lot before, but I would just would kind of have it hidden. I, it was an, inv- you're taking an inventory of the good things in your life. And it kind of trains your mind to be more thankful rather than focused on how bad things went that day or what you wish you had or what you wish you were. Eventually, you don't need the post-it notes, really. You just, every day I wake up, I'm thankful to be alive. I'm thankful for the the people in my life. I'm thankful for this little girl that's going to be in my life here shortly. And yeah, it's it's mind-blowing. Things work out if, if, if you let them work out. If you choose to have a great day, which we can do. And of course, things happen to us. But with that mindset, you'll get through anything. What advice do you have for somebody who is really going through a, a change where they might be quite scared? Totally natural, obviously. It's okay to be scared. But, and, and while you can't control the things that are happening to you, you can always control how you respond. And if you have a positive attitude, I, I would say that the most morbid advice I can give is to laugh about it make jokes about it. Even if it doesn't seem funny, you have to laugh about things in life or you're not going to get through those tough times. And then when you get through the, the adversity, I've always used humor as a coping mechanism, whether it was the, what happened in Iraq, whether it was the, the marriage and divorce. And it has definitely allowed me to not look back and, and be bitter or sad about things like that because I have a, I can recognize that I grew from it and if you're able to do that, then it wasn't for nothing. You did spend a couple of years in the Minnesota legislature. Is yes. that correct? Yes. 2010, 2011, or 11, so 11 to 12. 11 yeah. and 12. So I was elected okay. November of, of 2010. Okay. And so you served two years. Why did you leave? Well, the, the ex-stepkids didn't like me being in politics because I missed a lot of their sporting events. I would have done one more term had I not had the personal stuff going on. But... I would say it was the right thing to do because going to the sporting events with the kiddos, I, I actually, they wanted me to coach a couple of their sports teams and I did. Those were some of the best times of my life doing that. But I think I had a lot more to offer in the legislature for sure. I, I still had more to give. And if, and if I couldn't be entirely focused on my job at the legislature, then I shouldn't have been in there. And so that was the thing is there was too much going on, too much pulling me in different directions that I wouldn't have been as good of a state representative as I think I could have been, as I should have been. You spent long enough to really determine if politics is for you or not. Mm-hmm. Would you ever do it again? Perhaps. I've had opportunities. I've been asked to run for U.S. US House, U.S. Senate. One time I flew out to Washington, D.C. and met with some people to, to potentially run for the United States Senate. It was flattering. It was intoxicating because you have some of these people, I mean, guys you see on TV, Senator Lindsey Graham, Senator James Colbert going, you should do this. You would be excellent at it. And you're like, my goodness, I, I think I would be. But then you realize, you know, some of the, the sacrifice, people will rip on it. People rip on politicians, but the sacrifice is tremendous. As I was researching you, I found a very courageous position that you took on May 21st, 2011, you, you gave an impassioned speech to the Minnesota House. Could you talk about the circumstances leading up to that speech? Yeah. So the, the Minnesota House was, there was a bill presented that would put 
a constitutional amendment on the ballot so voters could decide should it should the Minnesota state constitution define marriage as being between a man and a woman. So, I mean, it was one of those where suddenly special interests had been involved and I think promises had been made from what I had heard that this was going to end up on the House floor, whether we liked it or not. And, it, and so I right off the bat said, my vote will be no, that for a number of reasons, but more importantly, it's not government's place. And I think in my speech, I had outlined that I would be devastated if I found someone I loved. Well, currently, and the government's like, you can't marry her. That's nonsense. And I thought it was mean-spirited. I thought the amendment was, or the, the legislation was. And I was very disappointed in my colleagues for forcing that, specifically some of the leadership that allowed it to get to the House floor, I think was... So I was, I was quite angry about the situation. You had an opportunity to meet a president? Yes. George W. George Bush? George W. Bush, yes. What was that like? It, he pinned on my purple heart when I was at Walter Reed, which was amazing. This is 2007? This, that was still 2006. It was like 20 days after the blast. And I just had my back surgery, so I had to lay flat. So I could just kind of lift my head up to see him. And he just was the kindest guy and said the nicest things to me. and. But meant him. It wasn't like BS. He's definitely not polished. So you know that he means it. I met him two other times. He touched foreheads with me once and told me I was this guy. It was super cool. In the White House was a special moment. We got to go and we were just getting a tour of it. There was like 14 of us wounded warriors. And all of a sudden they're like, you guys, if you would go into this room here. So we go in there and all of a sudden the president comes in. And he, he kicked out all the cameras and everything. And he told us how sorry he was that we had to go through the things that we we're going through, but that it was necessary for national security. And, and I, I believe him. I would, I would go back and I would do it again. But to see the human side of a president, getting to see the, the, the toll of his decisions was something I'll never forget. Can you talk about what you're doing for work right now? Yes. So I'm a, a director of veteran services for a, a county just north of Minneapolis. I help veterans get their VA benefits, help them kind of cut through the red tape. Most rewarding job I've ever had. I get to help people every day. I get to work with an awesome team of people that have the same, same goals that I do every day. And, and we have fun at work. We have fun, we laugh, and we do good things. So I, I do that on my free time because I'm fortunate that I have a lot of vacation time at this job. I use it to, to travel and, and give motivational speeches to businesses and organizations and been, been blessed. I did over 40 of them last year from, from Texas to, to California and all, all throughout the United States getting to share my story. So it's, I, I can't believe my life right now. It's, it's, it's worked out. As a, a graduate of White Bear Lake High School in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, you're 18 years old. Could you ever have imagined that by the age of 37 that this would be the life you're living? No way. No way. And I run into a couple of my teachers here and there, and they, they can't believe it either. Not, not even just that I was a goofball and they didn't think I was going to turn out to anything. But I mean, to think that, that fast forward to 2006, that I was laying on the sands of Iraq, listening to the blood leave my body, and I was almost certain I was going to die, to now I'm extremely happily married. I've got an awesome job, two, two jobs, basically. 
plus the radio that I the radio show that I get to be on on Friday mornings with a little girl on the way. I I, I can't believe it, and I and it's why I never want to forget that day because it reminds me how fortunate I am to be alive, and it makes me appreciate all these these little things in my life. It's a fantastic place to be. Where do you see your career going in the next ten years? I'm going to continue with the speeches until it, it if it gets to a point where I don't have enough vacation time, to, then I will dial the speeches back. But I, I plan on retiring from the job that I have. I would like to work there until 57. That's my current plan. It's people ask, and especially about the politics question, because I've passed up some opportunities where I think I would have won. But I'm so happy right now that why why mess with it? Why change it? You know, chasing that the grass isn't always greener on the other side. And I would be very, I would be devastated if the answer to your previous question was yes, I made a huge career mistake and and got rid of a job that I love where I get to work with awesome people. I get to work with my best friend for something that that maybe pays more, but that I don't love. Yeah. Where, John, where can people learn more about you? They can visit my website, johnmcreasel.com, and the last name spelled K R I E S E L.com. My book, Still Standing, which is the, the full version of what happened on December 2nd and then my recovery after. They can see videos of my motivational speeches and book me for a motivational speech through there. I'm also on Twitter at John Creasel and uh, most other social media platforms. So yeah, I'm, I'm easy to track down. Okay, fantastic, John. And we'll put these resources in the show page notes, as well as some resources for veterans who may be struggling with, you know, their injuries or, or returning back to the U.S. And, and civilian life as well. John, thank you for being a genius. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. Your time is precious and we truly value it. To help continually improve the show, send us your feedback or guest ideas to future at 12geniuses.com. This show couldn't come to you if it weren't for a group of exceptional people. Special thanks to Tony Gordon, Jay Ludgrove, and the rest of the team at GL Productions in London. Finally, if you want more information about how we can prepare your leaders for a rapidly changing business world influenced by shifting demographics, new technologies, and innovative business models, go to 12geniuses.com.